If you would like to borrow a Bible, will you please raise your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible so you can follow along with us this morning. We are in the book of Ruth. It's at the beginning of the Old Testament kind of there, after the book of Judges. If you want to turn to Ruth chapter 2, we are going to have a reading of God's Word through a video this morning. You can choose to just watch the video or or read along with Ruth chapter 2 as we uh, do that right now. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. Though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, 
You shall keep close to my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. For many of you, you are jumping right into the book of Ruth. You have not been with us the past two times we have covered it. We're now in Ruth 2, so I need to kind of give you a heads up of what's going on. There was a family of four. They were Israelites living in Bethlehem during the time of the judges. And there was a famine. And so Elimelech uh, led his family into a, a pagan country of Moab, And while they were there, the husband, Elimelech, died all of a sudden. The two boys that were left married Moabite women. And then those two boys died. So we're left with just Naomi and two of her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi told them, go back to Moab I hear there's food in Bethlehem. That's where I'm going. Go back to your gods. Go back to your people. Go back and have a happy life. Get remarried. Everything's going to be great if you just go back. Orpah went back. Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. Went back with her when all she had was a promise of great suffering. They enter back into Bethlehem in a time of, of a great pain, of loss, and suffering. And you think, chapter 1 of Ruth is dark and filled with pain. What good can possibly come of this book, of this story? And yet if we're paying attention at the very end of chapter 1, we have the last verse that gives a sign of hope. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The barley harvest was the first crop of the season, and it was about to ripen. And apparently... The famine's over, and maybe just things, maybe just things are going to get better, not only for those living in Bethlehem, but maybe just a hint that things may get better even for Naomi and Ruth. Chapter 2 begins the story of Ruth and Boaz, and it's, it's a love story, but it really doesn't start out that way. It's the story of two people living lives faithful to the Lord. And as they're, they're living their lives faithful to the Lord, the Lord is doing this. He's taking their lives and he's sovereignly crafting them so that he's going to bring them together. And believe it or not, I kind of just give the story away, but they're going to get married and a descendant of theirs is going to be in the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You want to know the significance of Ruth? There you go. But part of what God can teach us through Ruth is that while God is working out his mysterious, sovereign plan, we don't always see it, do we? We're called to be faithful and to trust him while he crafts his plan for our lives. And we're to trust him in all areas. And what we're going to talk about a lot about today because of the context here, we're going to talk about trusting him in the area of relationships. So I'll go first, and then you can go next. Um, I met my wife at age 16 at Richland High School in North Richland Hills, Texas. And we got married at age 25, nine years later. Now, you're you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. I'm going to tell you my first words to my wife. Guys, take notes. This works, all right? When I met her at 16, I went up to her 
And I said this. In nine years from now, we are going to fall in love and get married. No, I didn't really say that. I didn't really say that. We, we didn't know. We didn't know. That was God's ultimate crafting plan that we, we didn't see. In fact, for the next three years of high school, we, we played on the tennis team together, did not date, kind of hung out, and then after high school, we split, go to two different colleges, two different states, we're unbelievers. But get this, this is amazing. After our freshman year, two different states, two different colleges, two different settings, after our freshman year, we both repent of our sins, trust in Jesus, and become Christians around the same time. Isn't that amazing? In fact, we didn't even know it until we talked later on. It's not like we were chatting every day. We're like, hey, how's it going? Like an acquaintance. And like, you're a Christian? I'm a Christian too. It's amazing. We both finished college. After college, I come back to Texas to go to seminary. I'm involved in the ministry there, and eventually she gets involved in the ministry somewhat. We're talking a little bit more now. And to make a very long story extremely short, we got married nine years later, just like I told her we would. <laughs> and God ordered our steps and, and brought us together. There's a, there's a scripture from Proverbs 16.9 that says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I had the opportunity to experience six years, you might not think it's a big deal, but I got to experience six years of Christian singleness. And those years of Christian singleness were not a time for me to sit down and just wait for my bride to come, nor were the years where I was supposed to go out with a different girl every week to make sure I didn't miss the right one because there is this psycho thought that there is one for one, and if you don't meet that one, you're doomed. And so I wasn't trying to date and figure out all these people I could hook up with and find the right one. I wasn't doing that. What I was doing for those six years, by God's grace, is I was just trying to be faithful. I was just trying to obey Him. I was just trying to do the task that was set before me. And he was working his sovereign plan and crafting things and circumstances and, and putting them all together. But all I knew is that at that time, I had to be faithful to the Lord as he worked out his sovereign plan. And as I've been thinking about your lives, as I've been spending time with you, I know there's some things that some of you are waiting for. Some of you are definitely waiting to get married. Some of you are waiting to have a baby. And I know right now this is a hard church to be in if you want to have a baby because people are having babies constantly and you're dealing with uh, infertility issues. And it's challenging to be in this environment. I understand that. And some of you are, are waiting for a job tough market. Some of you are waiting for a breakthrough in some of your issues. Some of you are waiting for retirement, graduation. Some of you are very sick. You're waiting for a healing, uh, an end of a crisis. You're waiting for your relationship with your spouse or your kids to get better. Uh, some of you um, are, have some relatives or those who are close to you who are dealing with a terminal illness, and, and, and you're just kind of waiting for that to play itself out, even in death. And all of us who are Christians are, are waiting to be with, with Jesus. And, and there are some things that are, that are in our lives that are unknown. And I have to tell you this. You've got to listen to this. God has his hand in your life. If you're a believer, he, he's crafting things in your life for your good, for his glory. It's mysterious. You don't see it all. But in the midst of it, there really is a call on your life to, to trust him. And to be faithful no matter what. And that's why I think the book of Ruth is very helpful right now. Because it's showing that God is mysteriously crafting this sovereign plan for the benefit of Boaz and Ruth. But also for the benefit of your salvation. Because that is the line where the Messiah comes through. And Boaz and Ruth are a great example of two people who are trusting the Lord. So let's jump in today. Verse 1, Ruth, chapter 2. 
It says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So some stories and, and plays and TV shows and movies have flashbacks. You're familiar with flashbacks. You go back to the past. Some have flash forge. You, you jump out into the future. And some have flash sideways, if you know what I'm talking about. A little alternate universe. I see some of you getting excited about that. that is, I don't know what they're doing on that show, by the way. That's, that's lost. That's the flash sideways. But what we have right here is a flash forward. We're giving you a little flash forward. We're introduced to this man who his name is, is Boaz. And this guy is going to be intricately involved in, in taking the fortunes of Ruth and Naomi, and he's going to turn them around. So the, the author says, let's talk about Boaz real quick. I'm just going to project him out there. And, and the character note on Boaz, if you look at it, it says in verse 1 that he is a, a worthy man. Uh, this, this means partly that he's, he's got some dough. He's a wealthy man. He's a man of strength. He's a man of competence. And maybe the author here is also trying to give you a flashback because the men at the beginning of the story are weak, faithless men like Elimelech who leave Bethlehem to go and live among the pagan gods, faithless men like his sons who marry foreign wives. Boaz is in contrast to them. He is a worthy man, a godly man. And if you're a single man, this is the dude you want to be like. You want to be like Boaz. And if you are a single woman, this is the guy you want to marry. Now, he doesn't have to be loaded, completely rich like, like, like Boaz was here, but he, it's a man of means who's got a job. That's a great question to ask the guy who wants to marry you. Do you have a job? Are you going to make provision for me? It's very important. Boaz is a man who's making provision to provide. He's a man of strength and competence. He's basically a knight in shining armor without the shining armor. Let's jump into verse 2. Here we go. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So there doesn't seem to be any settling in for Ruth. She's a diligent woman. She says, I need to make provision for my family, for me and my Naomi. So as a diligent woman, she sets out. And specifically, she wants to go out and glean among the ears of grain. All right, here we go. Here's the situation. Here's what that means. There's fields all over Bethlehem, land all over Bethlehem, filled with grain that would provide food. The owners of these fields would have reapers who would have a sickle in their hand, grab some of the grain, chop it, and then gather a lot and place it into bundles for the women to bundle up. Now, occasionally, these efficient and competent men, while they are swinging and chopping the grain, occasionally, they would drop some on the ground. And God says, don't pick it up. And this is where Ruth comes in. This is God's idea to make provision for the poor and the foreigners among them by picking up and feeding them with dropped grain. It's, it's from the Bible. It's from this book called Leviticus. Let me put it up. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So God cared for the poor in Israel by letting them pick up drop grain, by leaving the edges of their field for the, the poor to come and get some food. And it's not like they're going to live large off of this. It's not like they're going to get rich off of this. It's almost like collecting scrap metal in order to make a living. They're not going to get rich. It's provision. And, and you would think, I want you to really think about this. 
Ruth, she's not sure what field she's going to end up in, where she's going to glean. Because even though it is God's law, you must remember, this is the time of the judges. In the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in his own eye. And I guarantee you, some of these field owners did not care about God's law of compassion and caring for the poor. And so it's pretty risky for Ruth, as a single woman, as a foreigner, to jump out there among these fields, and she could be violated, she could be hurt, she could be abused. But she is a diligent, faithful woman going through something that's very scary, looking for favor, and stepping out in faith. And and don't you just kind of wonder, I wonder whose field she's going to end up in. I wonder. But the key thing is that she is a godly, diligent woman focused on the task at hand. And what is the task at hand? Take care of Naomi. That's the task God gave her. Don't go out and look for a husband. That wasn't the task. The task was take care of Naomi. She's a diligent woman in doing that. My closest friend in Texas, that's where I was born, raised, where I went to seminary in Dallas. My closest friend, his name is Mike. And he was a single man for many years and always faithful to the Lord. He stayed pure. He stayed involved in ministry. And I'm sure that people would tell Mike, maybe maybe I told him this, but he said people would tell him, look, if you want to catch fish, you have to go where the fish are. You get it? Fish equals women. So get around women. Mike didn't take that advice. He did ministry for many years in a nursing home. There's a lot of women in nursing homes, but not not, not his age. And and, and Mike also didn't go to this this big church with a huge singles ministry where he could meet somebody. Nope. He went to this country church, just in the middle of nowhere. And we're thinking, Mike, you're never going to meet anyone. But at the age of 34, he got married just this past summer to a woman he met in his small little country church. All he was focusing on is, hey, God's calling me to be faithful. That's all I know. And it's not saying that if you're faithful, then God's going to hook you up. That's not what I'm saying. We know plenty of people, my wife and I, who are so faithful, that are almost like our our heroes in the faith, who are faithful, and, and they're faithfully single, doing the work of God. The focus is not on outcomes. The focus is on faithfulness. And that's what we have here. Ruth, faithful. But watch what God does in picking a field for her. Look at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I, I love that phrase. And she happened to come. Wow, that is just so lucky. That's not what This is God-ordained terminology. Ruth is not calculating in her gleaning. You really need to grasp this. Picture this real big, huge piece of land. And on this land is different plots of fields owned by different people. Now check this out. It's not like uh, Boaz owns this corner of the land and the other guy owns this corner of the land. But it's like there's different fields within the huge piece of land that one owner can own different patchworks of fields. So it's like hodgepodge. And all Ruth's doing, it says, look, she says, she, she just went out and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. She's just, just falling along the reapers. And it says, and she happened to come to the part, like that, the part of the field belonging to Boaz. There's no fences. She's just moving along and voila, she ends up And Boaz feels she's putting one step in front of the other. She's gleaning, but God is ordaining her steps. Another proverb for you. Proverbs 20, verse 24. 
A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Should be faithfully one foot from another. We can look back and say, aha, I see what God was doing. But as we look forward, it's kind of blurry. Verse 4. And behold, wow, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Well, looky here. Can you believe the timing of this? Boaz arrives on the scene and Ruth just so happened to be gleaning through the patchwork of fields and landed on Boaz's property. And at the same time, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Can you believe that? The Lord took faithful Ruth. The Lord took faithful Boaz. He's crafting their time and then, bam, they crash into each other on this fine day. So he comes on the scene and Boaz, he's a faithful guy. It says to his workers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Isn't that what you do at your work? The Lord be with you. And your boss comes in and he gets sued. (laughs) Right? But here, his workers, the Lord bless you. Look at the character of this man. He's He's tight with his workers. He can talk about the Lord. He, and these guys are, these are rough guys working out in the field. And he puts his attention on the Lord. He's not a man who's quiet about his faith. My faith is really private to me. No. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. And while he's greeting his reapers, he's looking out in his fields and he spots Ruth. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Now, I don't think we read this right. In our culture of love stories and way too much TV and movies, we, when, when the guy sees the girl, everything goes into slow motion, and he is just taken away and blown away about how beautiful she is. And that's probably not what's happening here because she's been working out in the fields, and she's probably pretty nasty. All right? that's, and, and he's not asking, who is that? Did you see the question he asked? He says, whose young woman is this? What kind of question is that? Maybe he wants to know her employer. Maybe he wants to know what clan she's from. Maybe he wants to know if she's married. But you got to admit, it's a pretty good question considering where this story is going, right? She's about to be yours, Boaz. It's pretty good. This is a good story. I love it. All right. Verse 6. Here we go. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Ruth's got a reputation, and it's a good one. This is the woman who came back with Naomi. You know that story we know? How she's been taken care of her? Well, she came to the field and she wants to glean and she wants to take care of her. And, and Boaz is listening to all this and now we're about to have this rich, competent, worthy man speak to this poor foreigner. Their first meeting. Here we go. First conversation. This is what it looks like. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter... Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Now, that's an odd word there, my daughter. It just shows that he's probably a bit older than her. He's he's probably Naomi's age. Because in verse 2, Naomi was calling Ruth, my daughter. And he has some important instructions for her. And I, I don't think the love story's starting just yet. He, he has his instructions for her. He says, look, stay close to my women and don't go to another field. Now, the woman, women will be the ones in the field. Once the reapers put all the grain down, the, the women would bundle it up. And he's like, no need for you to go into other fields. You stay right here. Stay with the women. And, and what Boaz is doing, he's taking this foreigner and he's connecting her so close with his people and provision. And, and look what else he says in verse 9. He says, Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. 
So not only did he say, stay in my field, but he told the young, he told the young man, he said, guys, don't touch her. Now, what he's talking about here is that often these gleaners would come into the field, they're poor and they're hungry, and, and sometimes they're trying to get all they can get. And the reapers maybe have to sometimes to beat them off. Like, no, no, you're not picking up the gleanings, you're starting to take the good stuff. And they'd have to beat them off and abuse them to keep them away. He tells his workers, don't do that with Ruth. He says, come on, Ruth, just go out there, get your fair share, and get some more. I know it's hot. You don't, need, you don't need to go in search of water. I'll give you some water. Here is a godly man treating this poor foreigner with compassion, grace, and love. He's just throwing all this grace on her. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful Old Testament picture, right? It's a beautiful Old Testament picture of God's grace. And it's, 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 it's amazing that the Messiah is going to come from the line of Boaz and Ruth, and then we are going to be recipients of the Messiah's grace, Jesus' grace to sinners, save us from our sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And, and I still wonder, are, are you amazed by that grace? Ruth is. Look at her response. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? That's a great question. Why? Why? Why are you treating me so good? Why are you bothering with me? I'm a foreigner, and yet you're kind of treating me like an Israelite. You're almost treating me like a family member. I'm blown away. What's going on? Why are you doing this? And so Boaz tells her. Verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to people that you did not know before. He basically says, Ruth, I know your reputation. You left your mommy and your daddy? You left your land and she left her gods? You came to care for Naomi in a land that you are unfamiliar with and associating with a people who are not your own? I know your reputation, and we're not quite sure if the love story is starting yet, but it looks like Boaz is attracted to her, not because it talks about physical beauty, but because her heart, her godly reputation. He's attracted to her, and he's throwing all these blessings on her. Unfortunately, it's often the opposite in our world. And really, unfortunately, it kind of creeps into the church. Last week, I was at a conference with a variety of speakers, and one of the speakers talked about sex in economic terms of supply and demand. I know it sounds like a crazy topic, but that was the topic. And afterwards, we were to discuss the topic in these little roundtable forum. And a 30-year-old uh, single woman sitting across the table, and she told the group, I mean, she was trying to be speaking in market terms also, and she said this. She said, the closer I walk with God the less marketable I become. Isn't that terrible? The closer you walk with God, the less marketable you become if you want to speak in those crass terms. And then we're not just talking about the world, we're also talking about guys within the church. This should not be for single guys. Single guys for, should look for the godly woman who wants to stay pure, who wants to follow Jesus, and go after her. And this woman is pretty much saying that she would have to compromise herself in order to get a guy to show long-term interest. Guys would always show short-term interest, but when she refused to compromise herself, they would quit showing long-term interest. That is absolutely terrible. That's not the way it is here. 
Boaz is seeing this, this character of Ruth, this godly character that's expressing herself and caring for a mother-in-law. Look how it plays itself out, last two verses, verse 12 and 13. That's all we're going to be able to cover today. It says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. This is, this is amazing. Ruth's like, I came out here and I was scared to death. I'm just a poor foreigner. I'm scared I was going to get beat up or something. And you comforted me by showing favor to me. And, and, and Boaz says, you know what? I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not going to be content with that. I'm going to bless you even more by praying for you, give you this blessing that the Lord will just keep blessing you. And little does Boaz know that he's going to be that one who continues to bless her. And then he, he says this odd thing. He says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She was vulnerable, but she has sought shelter under the wings of God, like a, a small chick under the wings of a hen or an eaglet under the wings of a parent. Ruth, what she did, she sought shelter under the sovereign refuge of God. And God has taken her under his strong wings of grace. And what he's doing, he's starting to rebuild his life rebuild her life. And as I was studying this this last week, I was reading a book by John Piper on Ruth. It's called A Sweet and Bitter Providence. And as he was commenting on this, he's made this statement about, he said this, where the eagle moves, I will move. The idea is that Ruth turned away from her homeland. She turned away from her parents. She turned away from, from everything that she knew, her gods, in order to seek a better refuge under the wings of God. And as she sought refuge under God, God was moving her around. He was moving her from Moab to Bethlehem. And as God moved toward Naomi, Ruth stayed under the wings of God, and she moved to care for Naomi. And so the strength that she got under the wings of the sovereign God, that just spilled over into her caring for Naomi, her mother-in-law. And now as the eagle is moving, she's staying in God's sovereignty. She's trying to provide for her mother-in-law. And under the wings of God, he's moving her to meet Boaz. And I thought about us. Obviously, we are vulnerable people who've taken refuge under the wings of God. We, by faith, have hidden ourselves in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what I find is amazing, and Jesus once used this same metaphor. I'm going to put it up for you in Matthew 23, 37. It wasn't on a good occasion when he used it. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Jerusalem was unwilling, and yet Ruth was willing to hide herself under the wings of God. We have taken ourselves and hid ourselves from sin and judgment in the wings of the Father, as Jesus has delivered us from sin and death and judgment. But what happens now as we are believers, we want to stay in the strength of God. We want to stay in the sovereign wings of God. We want to stay in the refuge of God. And wherever God takes us, we want to stay in him, not knowing how it's all going to play out. Where is the strength to come from to be faithful? It comes from under the wings of God through Jesus. We remain under his wings. Wherever the eagle moves, we move. And I understand. Believe me, I understand. It is hard to trust God and be faithful when you do not know what's going to happen next, when you do not understand what God is doing, I know that it is hard. And many of you have stories of faithfulness, and sometimes we need to hear those stories. What I'm going to do now, I've, 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 I don't know if I've done this in a long time, I really feel led to do something the past week, week and a half. As I was studying Ruth, I thought about someone in our congregation who, who's been in and out of it with us for many years. I thought about her noble character. 
And I thought, I think it will benefit you to hear her story because she's like a Ruth among us. She would never say that, but she is. And we're, we kind of have this planned, sort of. But we want to really believe that the Holy Spirit is going to use these remaining few minutes to minister to some of you in very significant ways. So I would like to invite up right now Alice Baker. If you would come up here, please. You can come stand on this side. Yeah, yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll just kind of share this together. Should we do that? All right, here you go. Now, Alice is the mother of Stephanie Watson here. If you know Stephanie Watson, and she's married to Curtis, they're good, good friends of ours and many of you. And Alice has been a part of our lives for many years. Um, as we would see uh, Curtis and Stephanie, and we would see Alice at our church. We, we never saw her husband. And we heard that her marriage was very difficult and always heard bits and pieces of the drama as it was going on. And so I invited her to come to my office on this past Friday and tell me a little bit more. And we talked for about two hours. And we're going to try to piece this together for you. Um, and it's a journey filled with a lot of suffering and also a lot of uh, faithfulness, God's faithfulness. So, Alice, you were married in 1974 in a church where you were both, you and your husband were both professing Christians, and the pastor told you, when I marry people, I expect them to stay married. And those are words you took very seriously. But as in many marriages, for those of you who are married, you know things can be really good at the beginning, but then things can get really hard. You know that, right? So I'm, I'm just asking you, would you mind elaborating what it looked like when things started to get hard in your marriage? Well, the first few years... Oh, just put it right to your mouth. Just stick it right there. Yeah. <laughs> the first year... Oh, wow. <laughs> the first go. few years were, I thought, in my mind, were, were good years. Um, there was a lot of um, hard times mixed with uh, good times, and the difference being was that a lot of the bad times would spiral out of control. And um, as the years went on and the kids got older, they got into school, uh, there was more and more times of verbal abuse. Um, and as time went on, that led to physical abuse. Um, without getting help, things kept um, getting worse. Um, game playing, there was times when um, he wouldn't talk to me for days to week, things like that, or he'd threaten to leave or threaten divorce, or um, uh, it was just on and on. Um, but we would cycle and go back to a good time. Um, probably eight to nine years ago was around the time Steph and Curtis got married. Things kind of came to a head. Uh, I was just getting more weaker emotionally, physically, spiritually, and just kind of stepping back from social engagements. Just, and the kids stepped in and um, tried to address the issue with him, and he did listen. He did go to our pastor to seek help. Um, that was short-lived for several reasons. <clears throat> it just uh, wasn't a good fit. But anyway, this started our uh, journey on to getting counsel, in and out of counsel, um, for the next few years and trying to reconcile. And so as you're, you're, you've got this out-of-control thing going on, there's emotional abuse and there's physical abuse, a lot of yelling and, and swearing and, and he'd manipulate you and scare you and threaten you and then they get a little better, then definitely go back to being worse, it's like this vicious cycle. So about eight years ago after years of abuse, after years of a lot of fighting, you come home 
and you find a letter ending in the relationship. And so what, what did that le- letter say and just the gist of it and, and how are you feeling around that time? Well, basically he said, um, I can't take this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. And my first thought, I was sitting on the couch and my first thought, I think Chrissy was there. I looked over and I was just in disbelief. I could not believe. Uh, and then I went just to numb. I thought, what in the world is he doing? Um, and um, then I went to anger. I just thought, who does he think he is? I should be the one leaving. I should be the one saying these things, not him. Um, and then I got mad because that is such a weak thing to do, just to turn and run and not face things like a man um, and just be a coward. And then it turned to fear. When I realized he didn't come back that day, and then it turned into the next day and the next. Then fear started overtaking me and it gripped me, thinking, did he really mean what he said, what's, what's going on? And in a few days he did come back, and I, I was thinking in my mind that, oh, he's going to be sorry, he's going to turn back to counseling. But he didn't. He was even more angry because I hadn't ran after him and tried to make things right. So there are a lot of gaps here that we're filling in. Um, you separated. He went to live in Wisconsin for many years. And over the last several years, there were still attempts to work on marriage. You would go to counseling together, then off counseling. Then after, after a while, he lost total control. Um, and I know you were cl- close to calling the police on him, even considering giving, getting a restraining order at one time because he was so out of control. And uh, he ended up somehow back in your house. And you were out as he changed the locks on the door, bolted the windows, and pretty much threw your stuff out in the yard. And then after a while, he, he moved out again. He would continue to send you nasty letters, blaming you and saying horrible things and calling and leaving you bad messages and showing up at your work and confronting you. And I'm sure there are a lot of people in your life telling you to get away from that guy, to leave that guy. And I... I just wondered, how did you, how did you stay with him, and, and where was the Lord in all this? Well, I had made a covenant with God to stay married. And if it was in my power, my choice, that's what I wanted, but I could not control his. Um, he, there was times, and I know he didn't mean it now, that he tried to divorce me, but I said, well then, if you really mean that, then I was going to take Dr. Sauer from Moody. He was involved at that time. And he says, no way. I said, I'm, I want to see you alone. I said, you know, then I'm not meeting you. So he let that go by the wayside. Um, but then it was a real long process for me dying to what I wanted and to focus on God. And this is a repetitive um, thing where I had to keep focusing on God and putting Bob in his hands, letting the outcome be from God and not from me controlling it. Then I had to set some tough limits, which was difficult for me because my mindset was, I was told, wasn't what it should be at that time. Um, I wasn't really thinking right. Uh, so I did have to set some tough limits, but what I learned in that, that you need to do it in love, that you can't just set a limit and just say, you know, I will meet you this and such a time, or he couldn't come here um, until this time. But it was, I let him know that, it, you know, I loved him, but I couldn't accept his behavior. Um, the physical... The physical emotional pain during that time was so great, I can't even explain it. So this might sound weird, but I slept with my Bible at the beginning. I, I didn't really have a lot of strength to read and pray. I thought God had kind of, it was one time in my life, I thought God had just kind of forgot about me, um, didn't really love me, but I still knew it deep down he did. Um, so when I would wake up in the night, I would just you know, grab that word and just hold on to it. Um, 
And then as time went on, I started opening up to others. My girls were huge supportive in all this, in helping me get help, um, in helping me stay focused, um, as well as Curtis and Mike. They they were always there. And I would put myself in situations where uh, I would grow spiritually and I would have... um, encouragement from other Christians. So around 2008, uh, you and your husband started to go to something called Restore. It was a ministry to restore marriages, and it's, you guys are just trying to figure out a way to stay married. And he, so he was living up in Wisconsin. He would drive down, and the two of you would have these weekly Restore meetings. And you did this for quite a while, and then he started to, uh, just last summer, he started to ask for forgiveness And you started to see some semblance of brokenness where he would break down and cry and he would just be grateful for God's grace. And I was wondering, what what was that like? Well, I was suspicious of him because he always uh, had good words to say. He could write really good things, but short on action and perseverance. And I didn't let the girls know that I felt that way because they had enough of that feeling themselves. So, um, so in the midst of going to restore, there was two things. Steve, the elder, uh, was really involved in our lives and in Bob's life at that time at uh, Harvest Chapel. And um, there was two things. And he, he was so soft and patient with me. He just said, he didn't want to get me upset. He said, Alice, you need to own part of this. He said, even if it's just 1%, he'd start out, and then he'd go up to 5%. Um, he says in the breakdown of your marriage, and you need to ask Bob to forgive you in that area. And I did do that. And it did make a difference in his heart. Um, and then the simple concept of the triangle. Um, Bob and I were down here, God up at the center And if we kept our focus on God, then we would gradually, um, our relationship would gradually become better. And I had to focus on God repeatedly because if I focused on the situation, if I focused on Bob, nothing would ever get better. I would get bitter and angry and nothing would be done for the Lord. Um, So... I just kept turning back to him for my help. And also, I didn't respect and love my husband. I couldn't forgive him. So I turned to God once again and asked him, Lord, you promised that you would supply everything we needed. So I said, would you give me the love, the respect, and forgiveness that I needed for my husband? And show me that he is truly real about this reconciliation, that he's not playing games. And um, he did. So you move move into the fall, this past fall, and now you guys are are back together. You're going to restore. I mean, things aren't perfect. They never are in anyone's marriage, but they're much better. You both have committed it all to God. There's this forgiveness thing going on. And then as the fall starts to move on, this is just this past fall, uh, things start to turn bad, but in a different way. You want to explain what happened? Uh, physically, well, since he's early 40s, he's had an autoimmune disease. Had a lot of dark times from that. But he would get better and get worse and back and forth. But this was different. Um, he started losing weight. He wasn't eating like he used to. He loved to eat. That was his favorite thing and take people out to eat. He had such a joy out of that. He had increased pain throughout his body. Um, And me, Mike had got us in valleys years ago, and I thought, you know what, you got to get healthy. So I start, we start, I start taking him to valleys, and this is just a side thing. But anyway, he was working out, and then one day he came to me. He said, I don't know what's wrong. I am just so weak and sick. He says, you work out as long as you want, but I gotta, I'll got i go sit in the car and wait for you. 
And then later down the road, I found out that uh, the cancer had eaten through his back. And um, so basically he was, at that point we didn't know, but he was walking around with uh, some level of uh, broken back there. Um, and in the midst of all that, I say that just because in the midst of all that pain, and he didn't have good pain coverage at that point, he was overcome with an urgency to talk to um, Steph and Chrissy. He said, I want to be sincere with my forgiveness. Um, he said, I don't want them to um, have bitterness in their heart because of me. I don't want them to repeat things in their life because of me. And so this was on Thanksgiving Thursday. He called Steve the Elder from Harvest Chapel, and he and Steve was more than happy to meet. He says, if I can get the girls together, would you meet with us on Friday? And um, we met, and I, I do believe that he poured his heart out to them and asked for forgiveness. I do believe that, that it was successful for them. And um, he wanted them to know more than anything that he loved them. And then that weekend... Um, the elders and their wives and the family, we all got together at Harvest Chapel in Naperville. They're off 88 and uh, prayed over him for healing and for strength. And that was a blessed time. Then we all went out to eat afterwards. He couldn't eat much, but he just, the joy of taking his family out meant a lot to him. Well, his health didn't get better. It continued to worsen. And then in Two weeks later, found out that he had terminal adenocarcinoma. The um, doctor, I was up here taking care of the boys, and the doctor called, and Bob knew he was calling, but he wouldn't answer the phone. I think he was just kind of scared, but told me, and he said, it doesn't look good. We didn't know the extent of it still at that point, but it didn't look good. Um, so I went home that night, and didn't, I was praying, didn't know whether I was going to tell him or not. And um, a minute I walked in the door. He goes, what did the doctor say? He says, I got cancer, don't I? He says, I know I do. I know there's something wrong. And I said, yes, you do. And we had some time of crying together. And uh, his response was, I told you so. That was his first response. And then he said, um, his response to God was that, you know, Alice, he had to bring me to this point to get my attention. He has been so merciful and gracious to me. He said, I, I don't deserve it. And he said, I don't want to die. He says, it's hard to die. I wish I could go from here to him. But that's not the, how, the way he works. But he just was praising God at that point, and I knew that there was a great change in him. And then he also looked at me, and he says, um, he says, we did it. And I says, what do you mean? He says, we kept our vows. So just to, 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 to bring this to a close here, I want to tell you that a few weeks later, on January 3rd, he went to be with the Lord. He was a man who finished well with his wife and his children. But I would say he was a man who finished well because he had a faithful wife that God consistently used. And I, I know Alice is not going to talk about herself. And just really briefly, Stephanie, can you come up here just really briefly? Because I'm sure there's a lot that, that you saw during this time. And just briefly, just really quick. It's really difficult to uh, take a snapshot out of somebody's life and try to um, write a, condense in a paragraph what's really a novel. Um, I will say that my mom, um, she's pretty humble. If you know that, if you know her at all, you know that about her. Um, but I'm free to brag on her. Um, you know, my mom did love my dad, cared for him, but her decisions and her choices were never based on her emotions. Uh, Oftentimes, in moments where she found herself at a crossroads, 
she would uh, sometimes quite emotionally just say, I, I don't want to hurt the Lord. I, I don't want um, to bring anybody down. I, I want to make the right decision and uh, really bring glory to his name. And I think in such a difficult situation, it was difficult. You're getting a tiny snapshot, but if I told you the laundry list of the stuff that my dad did, I could make everybody in this room very angry. Um, he, he had some real battles, and yet her eyes weren't on um, her situation. They really were on the Lord. And certainly, uh, I would argue that that, can, that first kind of response, you know, often we can sometimes get there, but it's our second, our third, our fourth, it's down the line response. But a lot of times... Um, her first response was um, one of humility and what would the Lord have me do in this situation, just a real posture of faithfulness. Now, my mom is not perfect. Um, I'm not up here to read some spiritual hallmark card on Mother's Day about my mother, but she was persistently faithful to a situation that didn't, um, didn't, by many arguments, warrant that. Uh, Ironically, uh, people along the way that kind of heard what was going on and, you know, my parents were separated for a, an extended period of time, would come along and try to encourage her and say, get out, get off the path of suffering. And it, it really, in essence, like, what are you thinking? Like, how is this going to play out? He sounds like a nut job. He's got to be mentally ill. Like, all of the reasons that we were kind of looking for the loophole. And there were times I, I felt the same way. I was tired. I was sick of it. I, I was um, ready to move on. And, um, and yet she, coming back to that uh, piece of faithfulness, just uh, really hung in there and didn't listen to those um, well-meaning Christians that were trying to offer their advice. So I just think that that real single focus of... Um, really trying to uh, faithfully serve God has been a characteristic of her life. When, when I think about my mom, I've often thought of, you know, Proverbs 31, that passage, if you're a lady, can be sometimes daunting because it's this esoteric woman of noble character that we're supposed to emulate and um, blah, 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 you know. Um, and uh, Ruth certainly falls within that category. I mean, she was a woman of noble character, and it's stretched my thinking and just thinking of my mom in that context, because she certainly, she certainly falls into um, falls into that category. Uh, there's a there's a part in at the end of when when the the woman is described, and it says that her children rise up and call her blessed. And I I got the easy job. I mean, my sister's not up here, but we could easily hands down. If you know us, we're like, oh, we love her mom. She's great, you know. But I, I think what a more poignant picture would be is is if I could take you back, kind of flashback, um, to the weeks before my dad died. A man who finally had understood, as he had shared with my sister and I, grace, and that God loved him. And although he wanted his family around, that was, that was one of his wishes, um, is just to have us around uh, as much as possible. It was really through the hands of my mother, um, providing the most intimate of care, um, reading with him, praying with him, encouraging him when the pain was uh, great, when he was just discouraged, when he was, uh, you know, wanting to give up, not knowing what the future had. It was through the hands of my mother and the, the love that she had shown him when he knew better than anybody in the world that he didn't deserve it. He did not deserve her. And there's, there's a part in Proverbs where it talks about um, her husband rises up and praises her. And, and I, I believe that my dad uh, would, would stand up here today and, and wholeheartedly praise her because it says in Proverbs she did him good all the days of her life. That goodness, that faithfulness, that, that looking, um, not knowing. We had no idea how all of this would play out. And there are a gazillion blessings that I could tell you um, that have come about a, as a result of, of my dad's passing and all the details that fell into place, and that's uh, for a different time. But I will say is that my mom, um, her ministry keeps going on. It it's, takes on a different, um, a different role. She's, she would never, ever in a million years, we're going to take her out for lunch after this, but she would never in a million years choose to stand up here and tell you all of her blah, you know, in, in front of everybody. And yet her first response to me was, well, 
if that's what God has for me. And I thought, man, I want to be like that someday. <laughs> um, that was her first response. And so, um, again, that's a life of a woman who's chosen faithfulness day in and day out. And so uh, she's been faithful in the past and, and consistently persevered. And I know that I don't know what God has for her in the future, but um, I'm very proud and thankful for all of that. But honestly, really, today on Mother's Day, this is going to be a hard Mother's Day for me to top. <laughs> um, I do think that I'm just so thankful to be able to call her mom. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Alice. Thank you. That's great. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the testimony uh, that you have used. Uh, when we read in the story of Ruth and her faithfulness and Alice standing with us today in her faithfulness. And I just ask, Lord, that you administer to those in the congregation right now who are going through tough times, needing to persevere in faithfulness, not knowing the outcome. Alice did not know the outcome the whole time. And she gives you glory uh, for bringing her husband to repentance and back to you near the end of his days. And I just ask you to help us all to persevere in faithfulness to you and trusting you completely. In Christ's name, amen.